0: The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 16:1 through 9, and 19 through 24. The word of God speaks to us like this. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits." But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is God's word to us.
1: Amen. Thanks, Victoria. Hey, guys, how you doing? Good. It's uh, it's really good to see everybody. It's good to be home. If uh, we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's been a it's been a busy few weeks. Uh, my wife and I got to spend a week in Southern California for our son's graduation from uh, the Marine Corps Reconnaissance Course, and a lot of you guys that know him and love him uh, have asked about him. So thank you guys for your prayers. It was a brutal nine months, and he made it through, and I think he uh, he knows the Lord a little bit more deeply, and he's. He's grateful for your prayers. So thanks for loving him. And then uh, my good buddy, Tim Kimberly, who is a guy that we sent to rural Iowa to plant a church. Tim invited me and Kevin Colley to spend a week with him and a bunch of the leaders from his church riding bicycles across the entire state of Iowa. And now that seems like a good idea. And on the relational side, it was amazing. Like we got to hang out with Tim and thank you guys for praying for him after all he's gone through in the last year. uh, I don't think he could be in a healthier spot. He's leading his family well. He loves Jesus. His heart's tender. We got to go deep with a bunch of leaders and that was amazing. But if I ever tell you that I'm going to spend seven days tent camping in Iowa in the summertime and riding my bike 500 miles, please intervene if you love me and break my legs. <laughs> it, it reminded me of everything that is wrong with tent camping in the summertime only add saddle sores to that. So we, we won't be doing that again as much as I love church planters. Now, uh, Today we get to wrap up 1 Corinthians. And I wanna just, before we even pray, just invite you guys to just thank God out loud for what he's done in our church since we've walked through this book. Can we like clap and thank Jesus for giving us this letter? We we've spent months walking through this amazing book, and, and God's done really deep things in our church. He's deepened our understanding of what true wisdom is. He's corrected things that were broken in our church. He's stirred faith for us to be a functionally charismatic church that loves the Spirit of God and all of his gifts. He's done amazing things. And today we get to wrap up this book in chapter 16, and it's one of my favorite parts of this book. Uh, a lot of people don't like the closing to Paul's epistles. They feel stressed out about all the weird names. Paul typically brings greetings from people with strange names to people with strange names. But I've always loved the end of Paul's epistles because at the end of his letters, we're reminded that the transcendent glory of the gospel the beauty of the triune God, what God's done to reconcile us to him, all of those lofty, amazing truths about the cross and the resurrection and reconciliation and new life and the new heavens and the new earth and all the things that are coming, all of that beautiful 50,000-foot truth also matters as a lamp unto our feet as we walk out the trenches of real life. It changes the way we do relationship. It changes the way we handle money. It changes our relationship with work and sex and parenting. And so when Paul gets to the, ends of, of the end of his epistles and a lot of us are like, man, this just seems mundane and kind of boring and kind of foreign. I'm like, no, man, that's what God does. God takes things that are awesome and beautiful so big that we can barely wrap our heads and our hearts around them. And then he brings those things down to the street level so that in the trenches we can be formed to look more like Jesus because all of life is sacred. All of life matters to God. And the resurrection of Jesus has bearing, not just on the great day when Jesus returns, the resurrection of Jesus has bearing on what happens to you tomorrow morning when you wake up and don't want to get out of bed. It has bearing for how we date and how we laugh and how we love each other and how we navigate suffering. And so at the end of this letter, Paul's gonna do some really beautiful practical things. He's gonna talk to us about giving, He's going to talk to us about planning. He's going to talk to us about relationships between churches and relationships in the church. And then Paul's going to close with a benediction that is a hundred proof gospel reminder of what Paul is willing to live and to die for, namely the grace of God. So I'm going to pray for you. You guys open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and we'll dive in. Father, we really do thank you for giving us this book. Um, It's not just another book. It's not dusty. It's not just historical. It's living and it's active. And we've encountered you as we've opened your word. And we pray that we would encounter you today as we open your word. And we pray as we open up the book of Genesis that you would do deep foundational work over the fall. And we pray, Lord, that the things in our hearts that are disordered, the places where we struggle to love you and trust you, the places where we're bent against reality, the places where we're tempted to try to create our own reality that's not true and not beautiful and won't last, we pray that you would keep coming after us because you love us. Keep speaking to us. Keep challenging us. Keep being tender with us. Keep our ears open, and our hearts soft, and we pray today that you would do deep things as we open your word. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus, and everybody said, amen. Amen. All right, I wanna show you three things, and then we're gonna close with the benediction. Paul talks about giving. Look at what happens starting in verse one. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. On the first day of every week, each of you, is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable... That I should go also, they will accompany me. Now, uh, Andrew Wilson, who wrote a short little commentary on the book of 1 Corinthians, he sums up what Paul's getting at in four ways. And I just want to name them to you because it's really helpful. Paul is mentioning, first of all, the priority of giving. Giving matters as a spiritual discipline in the life of the church. Look at verse 1 again. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. On the first day of every week, the Lord's Day, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. This process of giving on the Lord's Day was standard practice in Pauline churches. And the first day is a reminder of two things. It's a reminder that Christians should practice first fruits giving so that we don't just worship God with what's left over after we handle all the bills and all the things that we want to buy. But it should be a part of setting our lives apart and recognizing that all life belongs to Jesus. But it's also a reminder on the first day of the week that giving is not separate from worship. Giving is something we do as we worship. The Heidelberg Catechism talks about what happens when we gather on the Lord's Day in question 103, and the answer is really interesting. Think about what they included as the regular practice of the people of God worshiping. Here's what it says. I will diligently attend this, the assembly of God's people. Why? Well, to do these things, to learn what God's word teaches so that we can know God and know ourselves and know reality, to participate in the sacraments, baptism in the Lord's Supper, to pray to God publicly. Uh, What we just did is we prayed for the nations as Phil led us, that's not just impotent words that we throw up at heaven hoping God cares, that actually shapes history. And then listen, to bring Christian offerings for the poor. I, I believe it's actually impossible to arrive at Christian maturity if we don't learn to actually practice faithful giving as a part of our worship to God, it matters. And it matters for a few reasons. It matters because when we start to give, we're starting to see God rightly. God is the one that gives first. God's the one that gives best. And the greatest gift that God's ever given us was his son, Jesus. And so when we give, what's really happening is we're starting to have our hearts tuned to the very nature and essence of God, who's not a taker, but a giver. He overflows in generosity and creates everything that's beautiful. And then he gives of his very son so that we can be redeemed. And then he gives us everything we need for life and godliness. He sustains us. He even cares for sparrows and for flowers in a field. And everything we have is a gift from him. So when we give, it just means that we're starting to see God a little bit more rightly and more truly. In addition, as we give, it conforms us to the image of Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve. Giving helps just decenter self. I'm incredibly selfish. You're incredibly selfish. And left to our own devices, we'll constantly be trying to finagle for our own comfort and placing our demands on other people. But when we give, especially intentional giving to the care of the poor, what starts to happen is we just get out of our own way. We start to realize that other people matter and we're not the center of the universe. Jesus is the center of the universe. And in fact, if you want to have radical transformation over the course of the next 12 months, just figure out everything you can possibly do to get out of the center of your life and to have Jesus at the center of your life. It will change everything. And part of that is giving. In addition, Giving invites us to share in the joy of work that matters. Giving is this place where we're reminded that our jobs and the work of God in the world are not disconnected, they're deeply connected. And God provides for our families through our jobs, but God also provides for the mission of his church and for the care of the poor and for the planting of churches. In addition, there's the possibility of giving. Look what he says Look what He says in verse two. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside. Each of you is a reminder that it's not just the responsibility of the wealthy to give, but that all Christians are called to give. And, and the thing that blesses God, and this should be a, a source of deep joy, especially if you're a college student or you're struggling to put food on the table, if you're not a wealthy person, what blesses the Father is not the size of the gift that we give, but the posture of our hearts. You can give a little widow's mite, and that can be profoundly beautiful to God. The point is not that God's evaluating the giving based on how big it is, because here's the thing that's crazy about God. He actually doesn't need anything. And, and you know what? The Bible tells us in the Psalms, it's tongue-in-cheek, God's speaking. And he's like, hey, man, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you guys. God owns Everything. He needs nothing. He is completely satisfied and joyful in himself. So when we give, when we give, it's not because God is like stressed about making budget for the kingdom. When we give, when we give, we're invited to participate in what he's doing. And all of us should be able to participate, even if that's setting aside a little bit of ramen noodles. Like I, I remember in the first three years of Frontline Church, I think we had two people with real jobs, it was all college students. And you had to like navigate, you had to navigate all the people smoking cigarettes outside of the building. And I would talk to our finance team about offering every week because we were broke as a dog. And every week they'd be like, yeah, man, we had a lot of of dollar bills, a lot of change. Most of the dollar bills were wet and smelled like beer. But you know what? That's actually a blessing to God that people that didn't have a lot were being faithful to give. The third thing about giving that matters is proportionality in giving. It's not just that everyone should participate, we should all participate as God prospers us, as he prospers us. What we give is proportionate to how God blesses us. And some are able to give more, some have to give less, but God is blessed and he works through all of it. And one of the things I would say is that if you're waiting to really make a lot of money before you start giving, guess what? You'll never start giving. You'll never start giving because the more money you make, the more things that you've acquired, and the more expenses you have in your life, the best time to start giving is not when you're independently wealthy. If you wait for that to happen, you will never be generous. We should give proportionately. Proportionately. If God's blessed you in this season, you should give with abundance. If this is a season where you're struggling to make it and it's really tight, God's not stressed that you're giving less. We give proportionately as God blesses us, recognizing that both blessing and adversity come from the hands of our Father who's shaping and forming us. And then lastly, there's the practicality of giving. Look at verse two. On the first day of every week, each of you should put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. I love this. Paul doesn't wanna show up and have anything that looks remotely like coercion or manipulation. He wants the Corinthians to take responsibility to practice the spiritual discipline of giving so that when he shows up, he's not gonna browbeat him, he's not gonna try to talk him into it, he's simply gonna collect what they've generously given. In addition, the practicality of giving demands that leaders in the church practice excellent stewardship and are above reproach. Look what he says in verse three. When I arrive, I will send those who you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Um, this is just an ancient practice where in the ancient world, it was really dangerous to travel. And it was a common practice to have messengers who were accredited by letter, who went together with teams so that there could be accountability and protection on the road. And what Paul is saying is we don't want to play fast and loose with God's money. We want to have trusted leaders that are vetted, that are certified, that are going to go to Jerusalem and give this gift in a way that's above reproach where nobody's wondering if funny business is happening in the life of the church. This is the way we wanna practice stewardship at Frontline. We have a great finance team. We wanna be above reproach. We wanna run a lean ship. We wanna give every single dime possible to church planting, to caring for the poor, and to advance the mission of God in our city. And I think by God's grace, we're doing that. Now, let's move on. Second category he talks about is planning, planning. And what we see in the life of Paul is this really beautiful tension between strategic planning and trusting in the sovereignty of God. Paul isn't passive or opposed to strategic planning. Paul doesn't say, hey, if you're really spiritual, you won't make plans and you won't be strategic. No, Paul is willing to make plans and to think deeply and to use his brain and use his calendar and use his imagination to make plans for the glory of God. Look at verse 5. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia for I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on the journey wherever I go. But at the very same time, even as Paul is making plans, he's really clear that he holds his plans with open hands knowing that Jesus gets the last say, that God is sovereign and he's gonna work. Look at verse seven. He says, I don't wanna come to you Now, just in passing, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Now, I used to get really annoyed at people that would say, well, Lord willing, if the Lord permits, I I felt like that was just sort of flowery religious language. As I get older and as I've had more and more of my plans frustrated by God, as I've planned for things and God's resisted my plans, I actually think that it's a good thing as we're making plans to be explicit that all of our plans depend upon the will of God who might Open doors for those plans to work, and he might close doors so that other things would happen. Paul plans, but listen, he trusts God. He plans, but he trusts God. And this matters for all of us in our church. I think of a lot of you guys that are younger, that are thinking through next steps in your career or getting married or starting a family. And we can get so overwhelmed with planning. We can try to control things. And what I wanna invite you into is this beautiful tension where it's good to make wise plans, but it's also good to remind your soul repeatedly that God's actually in charge of your life. He's the one that's ordering your steps and he's the one that's numbered your days. And not everything that you plan is gonna work work out the way that you plan it to work out. And this happens absolutely in the life of Paul. None of the plans that Paul laid out here in 1 Corinthians 16 worked out the way that Paul hoped that they would work out. In fact, we know from reading Acts and a few other Pauline epistles that while Paul was in Ephesus, he ended up sending Timothy to Corinth. And when Timothy got there, the church was a absolute Disaster. It was a hot mess. Things were going really poorly. And so Paul then made a short emergency visit. He wanted to spend a lot of time with them, but instead he just shows up to try to resolve things happening in Corinth. And that visit did not go well. In fact, Paul later writes about that visit that it was painful to him. It was painful to him. Things started to blow up, and Paul quickly left Corinth to go back to Ephesus. And after he returned to Ephesus, he wrote a really strong letter of rebuke to the Corinthians that we no longer have. And by the way, this is just to me an evidence of God's sovereign superintending of the canon of scripture. Not everything that Paul even wrote is in the canon of scripture. God put in the Bible the things he wanted us to have in the Bible for all time. And so Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians and thankfully the Corinthians Got it by the hands of Titus, and there was a measure of repentance, and Paul thanks God for their repentance, and he changed plans again, and he wrote 2 Corinthians from Macedonia. The point being, it's good to make plans. It's good to be proactive. It's good to not say, hey, you know what? Really spiritual people just presume upon the goodness of God, and we don't save, and we don't plan, and we don't believe in calendars, and we actually just let life happen to us. That's actually not spiritual. That's ignorant and foolish, But at the very same time, at the very same time, people that know the workings of God and trust in his sovereignty always hold their plans with open hands, knowing that God is the one that gets the last say, and he's working. Sometimes the spirit of God opens doors, and sometimes like in Acts 16, he opposes our plans. And sometimes, sometimes, when we're really frustrated and clinging to the plans that we've made, as if those plans were our hope and security, what we're actually saying is that we are functional atheists that don't believe that God's good and we don't believe that He's powerful and we don't believe that He's present. So we can make plans, but we can breathe. We can breathe. Not everything's going to work out the way we plan, because you know what? You and me are not omnipotent, we're not omniscient. God is. Amen? Now look at verse eight. There's one more thing about planning that's really important. Paul says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work has been opened to me. So God's moving like crazy. He's opened the door. People are meeting Jesus. It's really powerful. It's really fruitful. But at the very same time, there are many adversaries, Now, I just wonder if you and me have a functional theology of God opening a door for fruitful life and ministry. And at the same time, in the midst of that open door and fruitfulness, having a lot of pushback and resistance and adversity, open doors and adversity often go together. And sometimes when you're right in the middle of the will of God and God is using you powerfully, those are seasons where you're going to experience spiritual warfare and difficulty and pain. In fact, here's one of the things that's crazy, and I've seen this happen over the course of the last 18 years, more times than I can count. It happens in marriages all the time where one spouse will get serious about growing and maturing and repenting and following Jesus. And it just kind of triggers all kinds of things in the other spouse that then resist the growth. It's It's almost like the pull is back to the lowest common denominator of immaturity. Or mom and dad have a dysfunctional relationship with kids. They finally start getting serious about being mature and strong and disciplining the kids. And then all of a sudden things wild out at home. Or, or, in the life of the church, God starts moving deeply. We, we start having a season of outpouring of the Spirit and renewals of church, and all of a sudden, there's attack, and there's criticism, and there's pushback, and there's division in the church. Now, these are not things that should surprise us. The pattern of the Bible is that when God is working, the enemy resists, the world resists, and the flesh resists. So we shouldn't be surprised when God does really powerful things and really beautiful things And when we get punched in the face a little bit because those things are happening. I think that this fall is gonna be one of the most powerful seasons we've ever had in the life of our church. Um, We're gonna make plans in pencil and we're gonna trust God and hold those plans with open hands. We're planning to dive into Genesis and to preach through Genesis 1 through 11 because you and me badly need to know the origin story if we're gonna know where we're heading as human beings redeemed by God. We badly need, we badly need to have foundations in our life set so that we can have a biblical anthropology to know what are people for? What were people made for? And what's work for? And what are our bodies for? And what's marriage for? And what's sex for? And why is it so hard to navigate those things in a fallen world east of Eden? We're then gonna do a counterformation module this fall on identity. We're then after the first of the year gonna dive into a biblical series about redeemed womanhood. And it's gonna be a beautiful year. And here's what I'm expecting. If God opens the door and more people get saved and more people get added, and God starts doing work to transform our lives, and we start thinking more biblically and seeing the world more clearly, guess what's gonna happen? Things are also gonna break and people are gonna wild out and fires are gonna get started and fights are gonna be had. And praise be to God, I hope that that happens, because that's actually evidence that God's working. All right, this leads to the third thing. Paul talks about giving, he talks about planning, and then he talks about relationships. Relationships. Particularly relationships between churches and relationships in the church. And Paul is explicit in this chapter and in a lot of his other epistles about churches partnering together to advance the mission of God. We already read in verses one through three about The Galatian churches and the Corinthian churches partnering together with giving to strengthen the Jerusalem church. That's three different regions working together to advance the gospel. But look what he says in verse 10. This also includes sharing leaders. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. Timothy wasn't a part of the Corinthian leadership community, he was a part of the Ephesian leadership community. But there's cross pollination, there's sharing of leadership. Paul says, Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. And then look at verse 19. This is awesome. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Isn't that crazy that churches in Asia knew about the Corinthian Christians and they were praying for him and striving with everything that they had inside of their own hearts that God would work deeply among the Corinthians? Paul says, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Now, pause here for just a second. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a friend, and that friend was just waxing poetic about how beautiful it is for churches to be autonomous. And the whole time, I'm thinking, show me anywhere in the New Testament where God holds up autonomy as a beautiful thing in the local church, Autonomy is not a good thing for individuals. It's not a good thing for churches. What's beautiful for individuals and churches is to experience a depth of communion and partnership where our lives get folded in together in the common mission of God. And what we see in the New Testament is that, yes, churches are governed by local elders, but they're connected to translocal ministry. They partner together for the advancement of the gospel. They share leaders and money and resource and help with each other. And this is an absolute commitment for our church. We're not a multi-congregational church because we're trying to figure out how to franchise. We don't have five congregations that are all running together and a lot of church plants that we support and love and care for because we're trying to build a bigger platform for any leader in our church. We want to build communion between churches because it's biblical, it's fruitful, and even though it's costly and difficult, it's the best way to see more people meet Jesus and more churches get strengthened and planted. Frontline Church partners with churches and congregations to strengthen doctrinal foundations and to have our doctrinal foundations strengthened. We work with other churches to develop and resource leaders and deploy leaders into the mission. We're collaborating between a bunch of our congregations right now to think about leadership teams to plant in Midwest City, Dell City, in Guthrie, Oklahoma, in Norman. We're working together to think about what are our next international church plants as we come alongside what God's doing in places like Asia, in the Middle East, We wanna share resources. We know that the mission of God is too big for any one church, but when we actually get brought together by the grace of God, we can do more together than what we can do individually. We work in communion with other churches so that we can have local leadership teams be assisted in times of conflict, times of transition, times of crisis. I don't know if you know this yet, but there are a lot of local churches that are absolute dumpster fires because of autonomy. Churches are blown up, eldership teams are divided, lead pastors and the leadership community don't know how to work things out. And, and sadly, what happens a lot of times is consultants get hired that don't know anything about how to lead a healthy local church And what we desperately need in the local church is not just professional consultants that come in and make bad situations worse. What we desperately need in the local church is to have interconnected leadership communities that are willing to fight for each other and love each other and share with each other. If things ever get crazy at Frontline, I praise God that we have friends like Steve Huber and Bob Thune and Hunter Beaumont and Donnie Griggs and John Murphy, and the list goes on and on and on with all of these great leaders that you guys know and that we trust who could help us resolve conflict as a church. In addition, we just wanna practice mutual strengthening and sharing resources and missional collaboration and church planting, and we wanna see more people meet Jesus, it's not that complicated. It's hard, but it's not complicated. We wanna stack hands for the things that God cares about and work with other churches. And, and I would just say, like that's not something you have to be thinking about all the time as a member of our church, but it is something from time to time that you should be aware of as a core part of our DNA that matters, that matters. We are not gonna just warehouse people and warehouse money and just try to get bigger and bigger and bigger. We're gonna do everything we can to follow what the Spirit's doing to send and to give away and to bless what God's doing in other regions. Now, relationships within a church also matter. And Paul's gonna mention just a few things. He's gonna remind the Corinthians to follow qualified leaders. He's gonna ask them to honor and recognize virtue and service and he's gonna ask them to greet each other with the kiss of peace. Let's talk about all three of those really quickly. Look at verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. He wants them to follow the trusted, qualified leaders in their church, and he's not advocating for blind obedience. He's not. Um, Paul would be the first one to say that if leaders are no longer teaching the Bible, if their character's a hot mess, if they're not repenting, you need to confront them. You don't follow bad leaders doing bad things. That's a cult. But at the same time, at the same time, we live in a moment that's so marked by rebellion. Paul also is going to rebuke obstinate people that are unwilling to follow any leadership. And he's going to say, Hey man, God's put leaders in your church and the leaders in your church are there to love you and serve you. And according to Hebrews 13, you should follow them because that's going to go better for you. Better for you. I'm I'm thankful that we have a leadership community with a whole lot of elders. And I'm thankful that if you're in a community group, you're only a couple moves away from an elder that knows what's happening in that cluster of community groups. And we wanna grow as a team that has more and more qualified elders and deacons to love and shepherd the church. We've got a bunch of amazing guys that are about to go through an elder development cohort this fall. And we're praying that over the course of the next two years, that God would raise up more and more men to be elders and men and women to be deacons so that the church can have healthy, qualified, known, vetted leaders to shepherd the people of God. Now, he also mentions... Honoring and recognizing virtue and service. This is something that's so countercultural. Look at verse 17. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. They refresh my spirit as well as yours. And then look what he says give recognition to such people. This is a really important thing. The one thing that we're called to outdo each other in in the local church is what? Showing honor showing honor. What Paul is saying is, hey man, flattery is not what we're aiming at. Sucking up is not what we're aiming at. What we're aiming at is when you see virtue and service in another believer. When you see something in another believer that gives you a clear picture of Jesus and the way that he serves and the way that he loves, you should recognize that. You should name that and affirm that because that actually strengthens the culture of virtue in a local church. We want to be a church that does that, man. If you're in your community group and you notice that the person that's hosting that community group is just practicing gospel hospitality and they're willing to care for people and open their home and cook good meals, like that's not something you should just experience without naming it. You should speak into it. Sisters should affirm other sisters when they see something powerful and beautiful and glorious at work in their life. Hey, sister, it blessed me the way that you took a stand on that issue, the way that you confronted that division with another sister. You just did something that gave me a clearer picture of Jesus and his work to bring reconciliation. I wanna name that and recognize that and honor that. We want the men of our church to honor and recognize each other. I think of ways in which I've seen guys in our church just go above and beyond to love their kids and love their families. Uh, I'm reading I'm reading the questionnaires that the men put together for our elder development cohort. And three times, three times on Thursday, I was brought to tears just hearing these men write about how they're loving their wives and they're caring for their kids and they're managing difficult, busy jobs. And I was exhorted to wanna be a better man. And when I sit with those guys, I don't wanna just think that. I wanna say to them, hey man, like I actually learned about parenting, reading the way that you're going after your kids' hearts we want to have a culture of honor, not a culture of flattery. There's a big difference between the two, right? We want to affirm what's virtuous. We want to affirm places where others are serving. We don't just want to suck up to each other. And then he mentions, greet one another with a holy kiss. Verse 20, all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now I want to pause here because this is really interesting. The kiss of peace by the time of Justin Martyr in the mid-2nd century became a formal part of the Eucharistic liturgy. And the Christians, before they would come to this meal, they would greet each other with the kiss of peace because the kiss of peace became a symbol of reconciliation and unity that Jesus had purchased with his blood. So as Christians greet each other on the Lord's Day with the kiss of peace, they were making sure that if there was anything divided between them, anything that was off, uh, offenses or hurts or unsaid things between them, the kiss of peace was this reminder that there's a horizontal dynamic to what God's done for us in Jesus, not just a vertical. We need each other, and we're invited to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in the way that we reconcile and forgive and love each other. Now, th- this doesn't mean that we have to formalize the kiss of peace today. The kiss of peace wasn't awkward in their culture because in the Greco-Roman world, they greeted each other with a kiss. If we instituted the literal kiss of peace in our church, creepy people would just get creepier. <laughs> We're not trying to do that. But, but the, principle, the, principle, the principle remains the same, and that's why every single Sunday we greet each other with the peace of Jesus. That's why we break bread together in community groups. That's why men and women get together in discipleship groups so that we can maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And then finally, Paul gets to this benediction and it's so beautiful. We we could literally do a four-week sermon series just on this benediction, but for the sake of time, let me just show you a couple things in closing. Paul wants them to see that truth and love are not incompatible. Truth and love are not incompatible. Look at verse 24, 21. I Paul write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That's a strong statement. That's a strong warning. If you don't love Jesus, and the way that you know you love Jesus is if you're being conformed to deeper obedience to Jesus, if you don't love Jesus, let that person be anathema or cursed. That's a heavy thing to say. That's a hard thing to say. That's an offensive thing to say. But then at the same time, look at verse 24. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. What Paul is modeling for us in the way that he writes and the way that he lives is that truth and love are not incompatible. Warnings and compassion are not incompatible, even though in our culture we think that they are. We need desperately, we need desperately to be the kind of people that recognize Proverbs 27.6 is true for all of life. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If our only framework for interacting with people in relationship is the vibe test or the boat not being rocked, listen guys, you'll be tempted to think that people that are simply apathetic towards you and never say hard things are your friends. And you'll be tempted to think that people that actually love you enough to go after your heart and occasionally say things you don't want to hear are your enemies. And what we so need in our culture is to build a community together that's not, not combative and hostile and constantly trying to flip over every rock so we can point out every place that our brothers and sisters are screwing up. That's legalistic craziness. But what we desperately need is truth and love working hand in glove so that we can be the kind of community that loves each other enough to say things that we'd rather not hear. I want to have brothers in my life that love me enough to go after my heart. I want you to have brothers and sisters that love you enough to go after your heart, truth and love. In addition, he closes with this. Grace is the beginning and end of the Christian life. Look at verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We started this book months ago in first Corinthians chapter one. He opened this letter with the grace of God. I thank God always for his grace. And he ends this book with the grace of God. Corinthians is bookended with grace because the entire Christian life is bookended with grace. The beginning and the end of what it is to be a Christian is the kindness and pursuit and love of God who came to us in Jesus, who actually gives us everything he demands from us. He loves you enough. He loves you enough to not give you what you deserve, but to give you what Jesus deserved. And he loves you enough to let Jesus take your place on the cross. And the grace of God is at work in the life of the church to take things that are broken and twisted and busted up and slowly conform those things over time to the image of Jesus. It's all grace, it's all grace. Obedience is fueled by grace and worship is fueled by grace. Repentance is fueled by grace. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's God's love and God's mercy and God's pursuit in Jesus that makes up the sum total of the Christian life. He starts with grace and he ends with grace. And my prayer is that our church would be marked by more and more of God's grace. That God's grace would lead more people to faith in Jesus. That he would lead more of us in this room to deeper obedience to Jesus that his grace would lead us to forgive each other and be reconciled that his grace would lead us to sacrificial acts of courage and following Jesus on mission i pray that god would meet us like he met the corinthians with truth and with love cuz we need it will you join with me in prayer father there's so many things that you're doing, there's so many things that you're calling us into, far more than I can articulate. There's more things happening in this room than I can name or mention. So Father, we bless your work, we bless all the things that you're doing in this room. We pray that you would capture our hearts, we pray that you would deepen us, we pray that we would become people that embody more and more the glory of Jesus that we would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. God, we want to offer the fall to you. We pray that this would be a fall marked by both deepening and widening of your church. We want to pray for all of our partners, God, for all the churches that we love and run with all over the world. We pray that you would bless them and strengthen them, make us a blessing to them and make them a blessing to us. God, we pray against autonomy and isolation for individuals and families and churches, and we pray that you would help us to figure out how to fight for each other. With nobody looking around, I just have a sense that there's probably one or two people in the room that heard something from a friend or a family member that felt felt painful in the last week, and I just have the sense that there's some people in the room that someone tried to offer you the wounds of a friend and uh, you mistook it as the attack of an enemy. Now certainly people also do and say hurtful things that are not the wounds of a friend. But if that's you today, I'd love to pray for you at the end of the service. Sometimes the kindness of God feels severe, but it's kindness. It's love. It's love. Like no good mom or dad is just going to quietly watch their kid run into traffic. So God, I just pray today as we close that you would feed us as we come to this meal and protect us and guide us, and we pray that your kingdom would come and your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.